This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. That's your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the wonderful, resplendent, highly intelligent, and fascinating Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? It is only logical that you describe me the way you do. I certainly think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm, you know, just a happy-go-lucky guy that just loves Star Trek and loves talking about books and comics of Star Trek. And I'm really excited about this episode because I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think so, too. I This episode is a pretty special one to me, I think. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, in the feature today, we have a special treat. We have Phil Farrand, the author of the Nitpickers Guides uh, to Next Generation Trekkers, Classic Trekkers, Deep Space Nine Trekkers. These were the books that came out in the 90s and they were uh, Nitpickers Guides. They had, you know, mistakes and all sorts of stuff from the various Star Trek television shows. And these are books that I loved growing up. Uh, so... I'm thrilled to have him on the show. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And these are books that are, are fairly new to me. So uh, I just started reading them. So yeah, it's like you're the old time reader and I'm the new time reader. Awesome. I might have to bring my copies to Star Trek Las Vegas and let you thumb through them a bit or something. Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. Because all <laughs> I have is eBooks. I want to see. Oh, awesome! I want to see the real books, the real physical books. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely make a note to bring those. Well, before we get to the feature, though, we do have some news items. First off, we recently learned that Big Finish will be debuting Star Trek Prometheus audiobooks, and actually, when this was announced, on the same day it was announced they released two audiobooks of the two Prometheus stories that have already been released in English. So this is kind of a big surprise announcement. Really cool. Um, those of you who know the 
Doctor Who audio dramas. You might be aware of Big Finish already. They're the ones that put those together. So, you know, these are just audiobooks. They're not audio dramas. But, you know, this might open the possibility for stuff like that in the future with Star Trek. So uh, the Internet's kind of buzzing about this one because it was a bit of a surprise announcement. Yeah, it definitely was. And it's after these books have been published. And so, uh, you know, typically when a book is published, the audiobook comes at the same time. But uh, this is coming afterwards. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting to see this, but it is a very pleasant surprise. And I see here in TrekCore that Una McCormick replied to Big Finish's tweet about these. And she said, you guys know how to find me. <laughs> and James Swallow, he tweeted saying he's making call me gestures. <laughs> so Yeah. So a lot of excitement in the uh, in the writer's world as well, for sure. This is, I think, pretty exciting. I haven't listened to the Doctor Who audio dramas myself, but I have a bunch of friends who love them. And so they're naturally very excited by this. The ones who are also Star Trek fans. Uh, like I said, the first two Prometheus stories are out already. And they're narrated by Alec Newman, who you might remember uh, as Malik in Star Trek Enterprise, the uh, Borderlands, uh, Cold Station 12, and the Augments trilogy in season four. And uh, the third one, I'm assuming, will be out at the same time the third book is released in English as well. Um, I don't see a release date for that here, but I'm expecting that will be out around then as well. Yeah, I would think so, too. Uh, yeah, this is really great. And just think it wasn't that long ago we, we were talking, there are no new Star Trek audiobooks. And so many people were like, when, when, why aren't they doing audiobooks? I need to bring audiobooks back. And, and then we're starting to get them. And just in the last little less than two years, we've been starting to get audiobooks. And so this is definitely a good sign that they must be selling fairly well for them to keep making some audiobooks. So this is a very good sign. Yeah, definitely. Well, we also have a couple of comics uh, that we're going to review as well. Uh, first off, we've, I think I'm going to go with New Visions first. We're going to talk about issue number 22. Now, we've been seeing some conflicting reports online. Somewhere online it said that issue 24 would be the final issue of new visions, but it kind of looks like 22 might be it. They uh, looks like kind of an abrupt end on issue number 22. Uh, there's a Trek core article that talks about this being the final issue of that series. Uh, if that's the case, um, I'm kind of sad to see it go. It's been steadily, uh, increasing in quality, I think over the various issues and, this one, I think it's a strong finish. I think it's a good one to end on, but uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have minded seeing at least a couple more issues. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would have loved to see more, but, uh, you know, all good things must come to an end, so. This is true. <laughs> uh, and, you know, even if this is the last issue, it could come back again in a year or two or five years from now. I mean, we still may get something like this again someday. I mean, I remember when the Kelvin timeline comic line stopped and we were like, Oh, it's over. And then we got a new Kelvin timeline uh, comic line. So you just never know. Well, for this issue, we return to the world of the guardian of forever. 
And we also get a reunion with an Enterprise crew member, Carolyn Palamas, who you might remember from the TOS episode, Who Mordens for Adonis. And uh, Scotty's pretty thrilled to see her <laughs> at one point in this issue, if you may remember his infatuation with her in that episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. he. Well, I kept waiting when she was introduced uh scotty wasn't around i was like when are we going to get to scotty because <laughs> mm-hmm. i wanted to see his reaction yeah I he's, he's not exactly appropriate around her on the show and uh yeah he's kind of back to his usual form when we when they do get together again here but we have this interesting story where uh they're on the guardian of uh forever planet and there's been something gone wrong uh with the time stream And basically Kirk and Spock once again venture into the Guardian of Forever back to the early 21st century, where, of course, Earth is ravaged by nuclear war and Holocaust. And wait a minute. No, they go back in time and it looks awfully familiar. It kind of looks like our 21st century Earth with, you know, cars and 21st century stuff. What's happened here? Yes. Hmm. Which I loved this already because I was thinking, of course, the eugenic wars didn't necessarily really happen. And, you know, we're still all here and there aren't all these countries and cities that were destroyed because of the eugenic wars. Yeah. This just shows that we're in maybe a different timeline from our Star Trek friends, because now they're entering maybe our timeline. But what I really like about this, I'm sorry, every comic that we do, I always find something to nitpick on appropriate (laughs) for this episode, but I love it where they're trying to figure out where are we? And they're like, well, we seem to be in the Northeast part of the United States, maybe New Hampshire or Connecticut. And I think, if you're in the Northeast United States and you're just in one town, how can you tell if you're maybe in New Hampshire or Connecticut? I mean, you could be in Massachusetts or Rhode Island or what? I mean, you know, anyway. But the funny thing is they're saying this as they're standing near a bunch of cars that have license plates on them that have their <laughs> state names. on. Like they could just look at the license plate and say, oh, we're in this state, you know, but maybe hmm. maybe they don't know to look there yet. Yeah, it might be, you know, so far from their, you know, what they're familiar with, they might not know that. But that's a good point. That's, uh, hmm, if I ever wake up in a strange town, I know where I'm going to look immediately. Right, you look at the (laughs) license plates of the cars. And what I love about this scene also is they're in an alley. They go hide out in an alley just like they did in the city on the edge of forever. There's something about alleys in the when Mm -hmm. they go back into the past. Well, they they do kind of find a little alley, like you said, to hide out, but they're eventually discovered and we're not entirely sure by whom, because there's kind of this weird abrupt thing where they're trying to figure out where they are and, and what's going on. And then the page ends with a close up on Kirk and Spock's face and they have kind of a weird expression on their face. And there's just a sound effect in the middle of the page and it says, Tong. <laughs> and then we go back to the Enterprise. So, you know, Bruce, you were saying on the other side of the page, there's always something in these stories that seems to just be really confusing and make make you kind of go like, what just happened? What's going on? And I think this was that moment for both of us here. Well, yeah, because it, we go Tong and, and by the way, both Kirk and Spock have really kind of comedic 
looks on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, Tong, you flip the page, and like you said, you're now on the bridge of the Enterprise, and it, it's then thong, and it's <laughs> Sulu jumping out of the captain's chair saying, what was that? And so I'm thinking, okay, something happened where it had an effect not just on the 21st century, but also now here in the 23rd century on the Enterprise. So it's something that's affecting both time periods and maybe even two different universes all at once. But it's not really connected. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's not really connected. It just kind of basically on the Enterprise, they're getting hit with those waves of time, like in the episode, the city on the edge of forever. Uh, and they're dealing with that. But meanwhile, we go back to the 21st century and we find out that it's Gary seven and the tong, I guess was his little servo pen device kind of knocking them out and making them into like zombies that are following his commands kind of thing. Right. So there was no connection between those two events. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of this weird, um, segue i guess i'm not sure but you know it's one of those things that once you get there you're like oh okay that's what happened but it's still you know it's it's a little visually confusing for sure it is but uh i i can see what they were trying to do it's just a transition of something happens to them let's go back to the 24th century something's happening there too you know it's mm-hmm. but yeah it was a little bit confusing but then it was great not only to have the guardian of forever but then we see gary seven like you said so i love tying those together and also seeing Gary seven in a black leather jacket because it's not the 1960s and now it's the 21st, early 21st century. And so he's not going to wear exactly the same clothes and maybe not wear a suit, but he's, you know, wearing a black leather jacket. Actually, I think I have that jacket. That's cool. I do have to say though, his office is still very sixties chic. (laughs) he's got a lot of uh 60s style going on there i guess that's just uh how he likes to be behind closed doors he has a special affinity for that time period i guess yeah it's it's time uh, to remodel yeah i think so it's looking a little dated the jackson pollock on the wall that's pretty cool but uh you know everything else i don't know but uh the one thing we do learn is gary seven doesn't recognize spock and kirk because, again, we've kind of dis- deduced that they're in an alternate timeline. Presumably, like you said, our timeline. So this is an alternate Gary 7 operating on our Earth. So basically, they're, they kind of work out what's going on, find out who's behind what brought them there. That part of the story, I have to say, is a little confusing. I'm not really sure how they ended up there or why and, you know what exactly they have to thwart to get back. It's some sort of alien device that they have to overcome. <laughs> it's a little bit confusing. Uh, so there's a scene, they're in this suburban house, I guess, and they're walking down the stairs of the house. And I thought, I wonder where the shot of the stairs came from. Like, is it John Burns house? <laughs> <laughs> And who is the gentleman that plays this scientist? I know. Too? That's what I was wondering, too. too mm-hmm. There's so many times in these comics, even other comics that are, are, you know, illustrated, but especially in this one, it's photographs of people. I just wonder, who are these people? 
Like, are these mm-hmm. friends? Is this like an uncle? Is this a brother? Or is this himself? I don't know. I don't even know what John Burns looks like. But you just keep talking because I'm going to look him up. Yeah. And, you know, this particular actor, I, I would have loved to have been there on the day because there's a bunch of close-ups of his face and he kind of has to do some facial acting. So, you know, I need you to look slightly to your left and really wide-eyed and surprised. <laughs> I think that would have been a fun photo shoot. Like, you know, <laughs> you just saw an alien come into your basement and, you know, do this thing. Ah, oh, what did they do to my looking glass? You know, it's this kind of it'd be fun i think well it's not john Byrne because i found his picture and they don't look alike um but i i yeah when i see stuff like that i think about you know what would it be like to work at idw is this the kind of thing where you're walking down the hall and someone stops and says hey could you come here a second we need to use your face for some things we just come in here and just just you know look surprised then look to your left and look to your right and you know i just sometimes wonder if you know it's like that because, I yeah, mean, I work at a TV network where they'll shoot, uh, like, promo spots and they'll say, you know, hey, would you mind uh, sitting in on this and being like, you know, someone at, you know, like you're an executive at the table or whatever, you know. Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> so um, I, I should say, meanwhile, back in the 23rd century, they decide to we, we've got Bones and Scotty and Carolyn and Uhura are kind of hanging out by the Guardian and they decide uh, two at a time to kind of go after Kirk and try and find them. And it's kind of cool through them we get to see what this time period is in the Star Trek universe. And it's pretty brutal. And it's uh, it's kind of one of those things, but, you know, they're therefore but, the, but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. They talk about how at this time period, you know, humanity is kind of roving gangs of tribes trying to eke out a living because of how horrific the wars have been and that sort of thing. And man, that's uh that could be us, you know, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't be so eager to be in the Star Trek universe, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I like that too, because we're seeing the after effects of the eugenic wars. So we, we know what it's like when there is no eugenic wars. And now we've seen what it's like shortly afterwards. And um, I think it worked well, but when Scotty and Carolyn go to check it out, and then we have, uh, you know, McCoy and Yohora later join them, I felt like it was just kind of filling the pages, maybe because it just didn't really make sense. Like, now they're going to go and join them, and then all they did is get there and say, okay, we got to leave. Yeah, they kind of get there and Carolyn gets injured and McCoy's like, oh my God, this is horrible. It's a, such a bad environment. I can't do anything for her. And then that part of the story just kind of wraps up because everything resets when, you know, the main dilemma is solved. So, yeah, like I almost yeah. feel like there could have been a little more to that. It just felt like it was just like maybe filling some pages. One thing that I found really interesting was the uh, the gentleman we've been talking about, his name is Rigby, and his whole motivation was basically to travel to a different dimension in order to escape the one he's in. And uh, it's really interesting. Kirk asks, asks him, Rigby, why did you do this? And he says, I thought, 
the, this world was finished, environment wrecked, economy in turmoil, worst president this nation has ever seen. I thought if I could open a portal to another world, a better world. But basically he sees Kirk and Spock and, you know, from this future that's brighter and better. And before he dies, he has some hope that, you know, the future is going to turn out better. And of course, Kirk's not going to tell them they're from a different timeline. So eh, hopefully, hopefully our future ends up as bright and beautiful as Star Trek's. But there's no guarantee of that in this story. That's for sure. I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a big problem with this at all. But, you know, the fact that he's just the worst president the nation has ever seen. I mean, in some ways I think it's funny and other times I'm like, OK, you know, I don't know. It's more of a political opinion from the author if somebody says <laughs> that because some people think the president isn't the worst president. But, you know, anyway, it was just that kind of rubbed me a little the wrong way. I'm not. Anyway, but, uh, but I thought it was kind of funny at the same time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I mean, overall, I mean, I really did like this issue. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it, you know, it really f- seemed to flow. I was a little c- bit confused about this device, you know, like how he was doing this or not really how he was doing. Cause I know there was some alien influence, but why he was chosen, like how, you know, why the 21st century in this suburban home in the basement of this guy. And just, I just, I don't know why he was the chosen one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seemed a little odd, a little, convenient plot wise yeah i'm I'm, there's there's not a lot of answers here um but the story itself i do enjoy as well i think it was an interesting story to end on and uh bringing back two uh iconic things from star trek the guardian of forever and gary seven i thought was pretty cool so yeah i i enjoyed this one i thought it was a good story and you know i know this probably wasn't planned because there wouldn't have been enough time, but in this issue, the title page with inside of the book says that it's employing concepts created by Harlan Ellison, who did, mm-hmm. who wrote the City on the Edge of Forever and created the Guardian of Forever as part of that story. And Harlan Ellison recently had passed away, so I'm sure mm-hmm. this book was in development before his passing. So it's kind of nice to end the series and kind of mention Harlan in this issue as kind of a homage to him. Yeah, I do. Part of me kind of wonders though, what he would have thought of this because, you know, he's kind of very famously, uh, very protective of the guardian of forever and the use of it in, you know, books and, uh, famously a hallmark ornament (laughs) and all this kind of stuff. So I wonder if he would have not really liked the fact that they use the guardian of forever, but I, I don't know. I, I probably should. He probably would say, you know, I have no problem with them using it as long as they pay me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I have to say that this was a good issue too. I, I, I give it, uh, I give it good marks for this one for sure. So we do have another comic that we're going to talk briefly about, and this is Star Trek Discovery Succession issue number three. And uh, first off, I just have to kind of sing the praises of Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson and the folks at IDW, because this series is killer. There is some great stuff 
in this series. And guys, if you like Discovery at all and you are not reading this, you need to grab this and read it because, man, there is some great stuff happening in this book. Yeah, this this is issue three of the series. And so, uh, yeah, it's 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 getting better with each issue. I mean, I thought the first issue was great, but the story just continues and it holds up for every issue. And it really is a continuation of discovery in the mere universe. So after our discovery crew goes back to the prime universe, we're seeing the events that happen afterwards, after they uh, return to the prime universe, what was going on in the mere universe. I mean, Lorca has now been killed and uh, Giorgio, who's the emperor is gone. And so her throne is now open. And so all kinds of chaos in the universe is upset because it, or is in disarray because the emperor's gone and everybody's trying to vie for that position of power that has been left mm. open. Yeah. And the the current person who occupies the the emperorship, this Alexander guy, of course in the last issue he unveiled his plans to eradicate basically everyone else in the galaxy except humans and he's starting with the Klingons. And the USS Constellation is there under the command of Captain Matt Decker, who's kind of cool to see. And they're going to, you know, attack the Klingon homeworld with this bioweapon. But they're thwarted at the last second. They're under attack by the USS Shenzhou under Captain Arium. And I was kind of, after the last issue, I wasn't sure what her motivations were or whose side she's on. But we learn in this story that she's kind of on the side of the rebels here, which I that was a really cool uh, revelation about that character. I'm really I'm digging Arium in the mirror universe. Absolutely. Me, too. It's like now we're really using this character, not just in these not in just this series of in this story, but in discovery overall. I mean, this is like her shining moment is in mm -hmm. our, in these issues and yeah this rebel cell of you know burnham and uh harry mudd and cornwell and, and arium and all these people i mean it's just really like starting to all like come together and it's like okay now they're after alexander who's filled the seat of emperor who is also Giorgio's cousin so there's a relationship there but really burnham should have had that seat but they thought burnham was dead and burnham was uh, Giorgio's adoptive daughter. So she was really the one next in line to take the place as Vemperor, but because she was missing and because she was thought dead and now she's part of this rebel cell that, you know, it really belongs to her. And it's not that she's interested in having that seat, but she's wanting to get rid of Alexander because he's looking to wipe out all kinds of alien races. He wants a pure human universe. Yeah. And, uh, Basically, so Arium on the Shenzhou, they get control of the bioweapon and basically all these main characters, all the, the, the rebels kind of are captured by Alexander in the throne room and there's a death among them, among one of them. And it's quick and it's tragic. And I was really sad to see that happen. Um, but I won't spoil that. I, this is one that I don't really want to spoil a ton of because I really think it's worth picking up and, and reading because man, I, it's, it's as good as the best moments of the TV show were. 
Like I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say that because I'm loving the twists and turns. No, here. I'm with you on that. And Laurel has a big part of this too. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got some Klingons in here. Yeah, I, you're right. I don't want to say too much more. This isn't the last issue though. But uh, no, there's one more. Yeah. yeah. So uh, now's the time to get into it. Uh, read the this issue and the previous two, and then you're all set for that issue four when it comes out next month. Definitely. And uh, yeah, we'll be sure to talk about that one, of course, when uh, when it comes out. But uh, in the meantime, what do you say we head over to the feature and welcome our special guest? Yes, because I just want to nitpick. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, folks, today we have a pretty special episode of Literary Treks, uh, to me anyway. I grew up with the nitpickers guides. I bought every single one of them as they came out, with the exception of the X-Files guide. I didn't get that one, but anything Star Trek related, I was all over. And so I've really been looking forward to this interview. And on the show today, we have the chief nitpicker of the Nitpickers Guild himself, Phil Ferrand. Phil, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Awesome. We're really, really happy to have you on. Uh, yeah. And then we're going to be picking on you, too. That's, that is just <laughs> fine. It's all fair game. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to try not to gush too much, but uh, I remember way back in the day, I was a little kid, and I saw the Nitpicker's Guide for Next Generation Trekkers in my local bookstore, and I asked my mom if I could get it, and she said, <laughs> I don't know if you'll really like that book. You know, you really <laughs> like Star Trek. I don't know if you want, you know, somebody tearing it apart. Right. But I begged and pleaded, and I ended up getting it, and boy, am I ever glad I did, because... There was so many hours spent with these guides open in front of me, in front of the television. Right, right. Searching for all of these little nits that you'd found. Right. And uh, published in this book. So I guess to start with, I want to know what was the origin of the Nitpicker's Guides and uh, what incident or experience led you to start writing them? You know, it was really an act of desperation. Uh, it was because I thought I wanted to be a writer at that point in my life. Um, and you really have to kind of back up a little bit. Uh, my love for Star Trek goes all the way back to when I was a little kid. We grew up in the Philippines, so we were classic Trek people. We had only seen the shows like a couple of years after they came out because that's how long it took to get to the Philippines. And Star Trek was the only show that my mom, they were missionaries, that my mom would sit down and watch with us because she thought that television was just trivial and supercilious, you know, nothing. She didn't have any use for television whatsoever, except she loved Star Trek, surprisingly enough. She would always have a spiritual application for it. So, you know, he would, and then she would sermonize on Star Trek. And so I always loved Star Trek. Uh, but my path went around here, went around there. Uh, I ended up as a musician. I ended up writing a computer program called Finale. Um, did that for about 10 years, made some money at that. Came out of that, I really wanted to do something in the arts. So um, I had made some money in my 20s. And when you do that, you get this idea that you can just do anything and be successful. So <laughs> I thought, well, shoot, you know, it's time for me to be a novelist. So then I turned around and started writing the great American novel that everyone was going to love and buy, and it was going to be great. 
and I was just going to shoot to the pinnacle of success in the literary world, um, started writing, did not know what I was doing, got to the place where I thought, well, I'm going to send this off and get this published. No one cared. No one wanted anything <laughs> to do with my writing. So then I thought, okay, so I've got to find something I can write. And it sounds like the cat has invaded. <laughs> so if you hear meowing in the background, that's the cat. Our cat opens doors. I shut the door. The cat reaches up, opens the door. Wow, that's talent. Anyway, oh, listen. <laughs> listen, this cat. Okay, my wife loves the cat. Um, so, <laughs> so That's scary. You didn't so, say you love the cat, but I get it. Okay. You know, yeah. So uh, anyways, back on track. Um, so I was really looking for something that I could write that would get my name out there that would then lead to me being able to publish fiction because I didn't understand how the writing business works. And so about that same time, Star Trek The Next Generation had come on and uh, I and my friends, we would stand around after church and talk about Star Trek. And the thing that really kicked it off was the communicators. One of us at some time asked the question, so do they have to hit their communicators before they start talking? Because sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, sometimes they just look at the ceiling. How do these things really work? And that started this process that we'd watch the latest episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And then we would get together and we would start nitpicking. And that was about the same time I was doing writing. And so I got to thinking, you know, this is so much fun. Other people have to be doing this. And I thought, there's a market here. And so I came home one day and I told my wife, I said, I'm going to sit down and watch every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, first four seasons, and I'm going to write down everything they did wrong. And she said, well, that's nice, dear, because, because we had made enough money with the programming stuff that I really didn't have to work for a couple of years. So I just sat down, started watching, started writing. And so you're doing this with videotape, right? So yeah, oh, that yes. would have been more yes. difficult than today with digital, where you can get a yes. really nice you know, pause and rewind. I mean, with the videotape, it would have been a lot harder. I got really good with the pause rewind button. I mean, I got really good with it. Um, and by the time I was all done, I would watch every episode like four or five times. So I'd watch them all through once just to kind of get my brain around it. And then you'd watch them the second time, look for the plot oversights, watch them the third time, start looking for equipment weirdities, watch them the fourth time, and then all the continuity stuff would start coming out. Because by then, you really, you know the episode, you know where it's going, your eyes start wandering. And then you end up seeing the microphone boom <laughs> coming into the mirror in the background. Mm -hmm. um, but you just have to watch them over and over and over. And then suddenly you start seeing stuff that you didn't start seeing, that you hadn't seen. And one of the greatest compliments I had when I was at Star Trek conventions and signing books is when people would bring me their books and they were all dog-eared and the pages were falling out, you know, because I knew they had spent a lot of time with those books and really enjoyed it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the thing that these books did a lot was they make you look critically at this stuff. And I don't I don't think in a bad way, right. just in a 
you know, you kind of right. start to wonder when you when you read something in this book, you wonder why do they have that big horseshoe thing that Worf has to jog a little <laughs> bit down and then jump over into to right. protect the captain. You know, that doesn't make sense at all. Right. But, right. You know, it, it, I love it because it it kind of for me was um, something that made me really interested in filmmaking and how the camera works and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But also storytelling, you know, all this stuff. Um, right. I can't remember where exactly it was, but you had a term, I think, for like a knit that if you fixed it, it would make the story not work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, it's been 25 years. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember, but yeah, though no, I we tried to make up all those little things, and once we got into it farther, then people started making up acronyms for things, and that's got like previews always lie. Pal, that's one of those pal things. You watch the preview, and then you watch the episode, and you think, well, that's not what they talked about at all in that episode. <laughs> and so it got to be fun once we started getting a lot of feedback from people. I, one I remember uh, that I use a lot is I think it was Bilk because it looks cool. <laughs> Yeah, right, 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 right. And it was interesting because I was, I was sitting in my little room and I was writing these books, the first one especially, The Knit Figures Guide for Next Generation Trekkers. I was writing this little book and I was laughing and I was having a great time doing all this kind of stuff. And I knew my buddies and I really enjoyed this. But before that book came out, I actually went to a Star Trek. I got on the, on the docket for a Star Trek convention and I went to speak and I brought some fellow team members with me because I wasn't really sure. I wasn't really sure how the fans would react to this. But you know, I got up on stage and started talking and the whole room just came alive. And I think one of the reasons for that was they could tell I was a fan and they could tell it wasn't mean spirited. And they could tell I actually knew as much as they did about Star Trek uh, and knew more than most of them in the room because I had spent so much time with it. Now, there were people there who knew as much or more (laughs) than I did. And boy, those people were dedicated. But, uh, you know, I could hold my own. And that was really important. And they knew I loved the show. Yeah, I think that's the thing. So, you know, Dan mentioned that he grew up with these books. I'm new to the book, so I'm a newbie to all this uh, right now, but that was the thing that I liked about the books is that it isn't good fun. This isn't something that's trying to trash the series and point out its flaws. It's a, it's a fun comedic read because it's like, yeah, why, wh- how do the doors know when to open or not when somebody's standing there? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> right. it's things we've all thought about. And then you point out other things that we didn't notice. And it is just in good fun. The doors read yeah, the script, and, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they read the script. It's really good. And the little, the continuity stuff, you know, where there's four pips on Picard's collar and then there's three and then there's four, you know, they didn't have time to go back and fix that. Maybe somebody saw it in the post edit, but by that time it's too late. And yet you can sit there and watch that episode over and over and you don't see it until you look at it. And then it's like, I found something new, you know, and then it gets to be so funny. Uh, it's not a Star Trek thing, but probably one of my favorite uh, nits of all time is the Star Wars thing where the stormtrooper hits his head when he's coming in on A New Hope 
that first. I'm sure you guys have seen that one. Yeah, that I mean, it's it, it was funny every single time. It will always be funny. And so that's it's part of the fun. Now, of it. Has anybody ever complained about your book in the fact that when you point something out now, they can't unsee it and they see it every single well, time. <laughs> I did get over the course of the nitpickers guides. Uh, it was an amazing number of letters. It was like 10,000 letters I got. I mean, I would go to my mailbox every day and there would be, you know, a hundred letters in my mailbox every week and I'd tear them open and, and got a lot of really good material. But a lot of those letters would start off with, what have you done to me? I can't just sit here and enjoy this show anymore. I'm always looking for stuff. It's like, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> You do have to be careful when you're nitpicking because you have to know your audience. So my wife and I, we watch something, we're making commentary all the time. But when we're around other people, we kind of dampen that down because some people really do get irritated at it. You just kind of kind of know the people that you're dealing with. And if they don't want to nitpick, that's fine. That's fine. More fun for the rest of us. Well, one of the things that I really appreciated about these was uh, as a kid, I was never like a part of the official Star Trek fan club or anything like that. And it was really through these books that I first got a sense of the Star Trek community and I think especially when the next the Nitpicker's Guide for Next Generation Trekkers Volume 2 came out and you kind of got that that Nitpicker's Guild going on with all the people sending contributions. Um, you know, like I said, this is the first time that I felt that I was part of a larger community, even though I never actually sent you a letter. I just felt this kind of companionship with all these people combing over Star Trek and, and finding right and stuff. <laughs> And I was wondering, looking for stuff. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of the fostering of the Nitpickers Guild and what that meant to you. You know, it was fun, um, and it really it was something that I felt like I needed to do from the beginning uh, because I was just one guy. I knew I was just one guy, and I knew that if there were other people that were out there doing this, that they might want to have a place where they could. You know, lodge their observations and those types of things. And, you know, if they had happened a couple of years later, if the guides had happened a couple of years later, we certainly would have had a much bigger web presence. I did put up a website at one point, and there is, there is actually still a small discussion board uh, that is out there where, you know, there's a couple of dozen people that still come out and post stuff, and, and it's fun. Uh, but at the time, of course, all there was was mail. Um, but it, it was really a joy to have so many people write, uh, and be able to quote so many people in the back of the book and put their names in there. I mean, I just considered that to be part of the fun of doing the whole thing because I knew that it was more than me. And when I'd go to conventions and stuff, some of the people who had been quote unquote officially inducted into the nitpickers guild, you know, they'd come up and we'd talk and we'd have a lot of fun and enjoy talking with each other and visiting. So it, it was always baked right into the nitpickers guides that we were going to do. And that. then that kind of translated into volume two of the next generation. Yes. Yes. So there was the volume one. I did that by myself. Um, and in the publishing business, if one book is successful, you can flip around and do another one really quick. So we turned around the next year, came out with uh, the classic Trek guide. 
And then by that point, I was getting so much stuff coming in that then we could turn around and do volume two. Uh, when I was doing volume one, there was some question as to whether or not Star Trek was going to go beyond season four, the next gen Trek, whether it was going to go beyond season four. And then they decided to do a season five. And we almost didn't publish the book at that point because there was a lot of discussion. Okay, do we halt at this point and wait for them to do season five? Uh, but we talked about it and it just made more sense to just go ahead, do season four. And then there was five and of course there was six and there was seven. And then, I mean, there was plenty of material. There was just plenty of material. So it was really, it was fun when the material started coming in. I, uh, speaking of, uh, the message board you're talking about, that would be knitcentral.com slash discuss and yes presence there yep yeah <laughs> still find yep. all my old yep. posts that was it so and you know i feel a little bad in a way because my life is sort of trundled on to other things and so obviously i still pay the bills we have it up and the moderators kind of still do their thing but there came a point i don't know after about 10 15 years uh that i just said you know i'm not going to be around here much because i got i got to get off to other things uh but like i said there's still a couple of dozen people that come out and, and they contribute and, you know it's fun there was uh actually I'm, I'm gonna brag a little bit here the first knit that i found that i could not see that anyone else had found yet and uh, it was Star Trek VI, and I saw this thing, and I flipped through the classic guide, and it wasn't in there. And I went online to knitcentral.com slash disgust and read, read through all the posts on The Undiscovered Country, and I didn't see it there, and I was so happy and posted it. And it's uh, McCoy says the line, he's definitely on about something, Jim, and the camera changes halfway through the line. His lips aren't uh -huh. moving for the first half of the line, and then they are for the second half. <laughs> Yeah, see, there you go. There you go. Welcome to the Knit Pickers Guild officially. So, there you go. I know that's, I know exactly. I, I caught that before too. And, and the reason for me is I remember at the time when the movie came out, they either showed a clip from that scene in the trailer or, or something, and it didn't show that change in shot. So when I saw the movie and that change in shot and then goes back, it kind of threw me off. And then anytime I saw that afterwards, I'm like, wait, is he even moving his lips? <laughs> <laughs> they overdubbed this for some reason. They went back in and shot it again. <laughs> There's definitely a particular thrill about finding something like that. So, you know, I, I can just kind of put myself in your shoes when you see that boom mic for the first time or, or something like that. And one thing I notice is with the Blu-rays of The Next Generation now, um, a lot of shots on the bridge, it's not noticeable in any of the older standard definition shots, but there's a ton of gaffers tape covering glares oh. on the back <laughs> computer panel oh, in almost really? every shot. Yep. <laughs> yep. They didn't expect it was going to be high definition. Yeah, they're yep. like, nobody's going to see that. It's <laughs> that's right it's it's fine it looks good uh, and we didn't yep. see it for 25 years <laughs> right right well yeah I'm, i kind of wanted to go back to we talked about nitpicking and good cheer and the kind of um positive way of, of nitpicking there's a lot of um i, I guess nitpicking would be the term for it i kind of want to think of a different term for what happens nowadays is there's a lot of kind of almost toxic fandom online that's just pulling things apart and criticizing everything 
but not in the spirit of of how these guides were written but more of you know just this kind of i don't know wanting to any anything new is bad it seems sometimes right and i know that's right. just kind of the most vocal parts of the fan base it's not the majority but for you was it kind of hard to strike that balance between fun nitpicking and the tendency of some to complain or whine about star trek you know for me um i'm appreciative of creative efforts i enjoy being a creator as well and so i know the work that's involved uh and i respect the work that's involved uh and i respect the fact that people who will delve into it enough to be able to see where the flaws are there's a dedication to that as well um, but I'm just so happy that the creators have actually put these things together that I can enjoy that I don't expect it to be perfect because I know in my own creations, as much as I try, I'm bound to overlook something. And so I, I realize that, well, what it comes down to is this, I truly believe that life is reciprocity. And so that whatever you give out in life is what you're going to get back. And so as I, as a creator, I know I'm going to do my best to try to put a quality product out there, but sooner or later, I'm going to mess up. And when that person comes back to me to point that out, I would like to treat them with the same kind of loving, kind attention that I feel like I treated Trek with. Uh, I was at one Star Trek convention and one of the executive assistants for Rick Berman was there and he was talking and that kind of stuff. And I had this thing that I would do whenever I was there, whoever the mainliners were, I'd take my volume one book of Next Generation Trekkers and I'd walk up to them. I'd get in line for a signature, walk up to them and say, what's your favorite episode? of the first four seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation, they'd tell me I'd open to that episode, I'd put the book down in front of them, I'd say, you can sign right across the page, I know what it says, I wrote it. And so, you know, I've got my, that one book, that's my signature book, I've got all kinds of signatures in that book from when I was at Star Trek conventions. And this executive assistant, I'm so sorry that I can't remember his name, um, I got in line, I flipped this book over, put it in front of him, he looked down at it. He flipped back to the cover. He saw it was the nitpicker's guide and he looked up to me and if looks could kill, <laughs> I mean, he, he, he was not amused at that moment, but I just said, Oh, come on. It's all in fun. And then he kind of grinned and he signed my book. He said, Phil, quit it. We're trying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And I would, I would really hope that that came across in the books that, you know, this is all in good fun. The creators have done a great job here. This is just some little dust in the corners and we're okay. And at the end of the day, we're all going to go on. So just have a good time and don't worry about getting all upset about well, and, it. And you can feel the love good. in the book because it's not just nitpicking on things, but you're giving actual summaries of each episode you're giving yeah. trivia yeah. you're giving some background information it's just not let me tear it apart you know right no no <laughs> no i really do love star trek 
it's been just a lot of fun. And there, there has been some sadness in it all for me. I mean, one of the sadnesses was when Enterprise came on, I only got to see just a few episodes of that. And then it moved off to whatever it was, the WB or something, whatever that was, it, it went to cable and we didn't get cable. And so then I kind of got disconnected from the Trek universe at that point. And I, I just never have been able to get that restarted and get back to it, even though it's available online now. Um, but all of the different incarnations, you know, we loved them all. They were fun. It was good. I wouldn't have spent so much time with it if I didn't like it. Because so, it was a lot of work. Well, it, like Bruce said, it certainly comes through on the pages. I agree completely. And I also like a lot of the kind of interstitials in between. Um, just I flipped randomly here, the romance tote board, for example. Right, right. And all those little <laughs> summaries of, of things in Star Trek. And I love this one in particular because even something like this just kind of makes you think think about the show and just look at it with a little bit more of a critical eye. And uh, so, for example, you've got a bunch of statistics, number of women who kiss Picard, seven, uh, number of women who give LaForge the brush off, two, number of girlfriends for Wesley, three, number of fantasy women, at least 13. And then your final one, number of fantasy men, none. None. <laughs> and a little comment. For some reason, that concept hasn't caught on. Hmm. And like, mm. even at a young age, I remember thinking, like, why is that? That's that's weird. Yeah. And you know, the idea of double standards in Hollywood and that sort yeah. of thing. And yeah. even something as progressive as Star Trek, you can still kind of put that lens on and, and say, okay, yeah. where are the flaws here? Where you know? And I, I love right. that. Right. If there was. There was one episode, uh, oh, see, I would have known this 25 years ago. There was one episode where a woman comes on board uh, and she basically wears nothing but lingerie. Framka Jenke played it. Is that the way you say her name? Fram uh, Famke Jansen, uh, the perfect me. Famke okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. She, and of course, she's a beautiful woman. But I mean, the entire time she's on there, she's just dressed in lingerie. And like she was taken away from her parents at a young age. That means there's no parents-in-law when you get into a relationship with this woman. She conforms herself to become whatever the man wants. <laughs> and it's like, right, so there's never any argument. She doesn't have a mind of her own. And she just does everything he wants to do. It's like, my line to that was like, hum, I wonder if a man or a woman made up this character, you know, <laughs> because it's so lopsided. Yep. Oh, but, yeah. I, I totally remember you know, that, that rumination, like, did a man or a woman write this? And right. yeah, <laughs> like, I think uh, speaking as a young, impressionable reader, I, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but uh, yeah, that made an impact. And that I think yeah. that sort of thing really shaped how I look at the world. So, you know, mm -hmm. thank you for that. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. It's fun to think about. Absolutely. I have, a, I have a little saying that kind of goes along with that, that you can tell how much respect a director has for his female cast members, especially the lead, for how long it takes them to get her naked or in her underwear in the first episode. Because you look at like X-Files and it's, I don't know, it's about 30 minutes into the show, you know, 
before Scully is in her underwear. <laughs> if you look at something, I was just just started watching uh, the marvelous Miss Maisel on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen that. It's cute. It's it's cute. But first episode, she's standing there topless. It's like, well, okay, there you go. <laughs> Because, you know, you've got a director and he has a certain amount of clout and he can do what he wants. And typically, you know, your lead, your, your lead who are females will end up in various stages of undress in the first episode. Yeah, you know, maybe we're just so used to seeing that. But by the time I was watching Smallville, it was just so loud and clear to me, you know, we're going to see Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, shirtless at some point in every episode. And I would call right. it out every time to my right. wife. I'm like, there he is. He's shirtless. <laughs> and even when they did the series Arrow, he shirtless a lot in there too. <laughs> right, right, right. So at least there's some equity coming along now, you know, <laughs> at least at least we get both the male and the female side doing it because in the olden days, it was pretty much just the females, you know, so we're making improvements. I think I remember your description of one particular shot in the next generation where I think like Picard and Jordy are having a conversation and the camera follows Troy's backside as she walks up right. a set of stairs <laughs> for like a full 13 right. to 20 seconds. And then right. she turns around and finally has a line and you're like, Right. Hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just what are we selling here? Were there any oh, like yeah. errors that really actually bothered you that you were just like, you know, I, I can't even find this to be funny. It just bothers me. You know, there were certain things about the mythology. I mean, one that comes to mind immediately, this was not hugely bothersome. But it made me wonder if they had a Bible somewhere that they were writing the stuff down in because they missed it. And as I recall, it had something to do with the Ferengi and whether or not the Betazoid could read Ferengi minds. Because you had one episode where Troy, Troy seemed to be able to do that. And in another episode, she said very clearly that no, the Betazoids could not read Ferengi minds. And it was at that point, I thought, oh, okay, the editor screwed up there. Whoever is the script editor on this? Because you, you've got to have a list of those things somewhere. You know, if you're going to do your due diligence as a script editor, you've got to, when those little facts come out, you have to list them somewhere. Um, but again, you're dealing with production deadlines and there's only so much money. And maybe someone caught it, but it was too late. And by that point, you just kind of have to shrug your shoulders. And go or they on. realized it and they, well, we just don't care because this is going to work for the story. And But unfortunately, they should know that Star Trek fans are going to remember everything. <laughs> yeah, but as long as they keep watching the episodes, that's all that's truly important. So, <laughs> and we do, we do, we do, we do. After the the Next Generation and then the Classic Series and then the Next Generation Volume 2, we got the Deep Space Nine guide. And yep. uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about your um, experience in writing that and kind of what your, your thoughts about putting that one together was like. Um, you know, that uh, and... Uh, Again, that one's probably, what, 21 years old now? 
Um, it was fine. I mean, obviously the formula changed a little bit in Deep Space Nine. It wasn't quite as optimistic. Um, and of, of the series, um, you know, Deep Space Nine, I, what, I didn't feel quite as attached to Deep Space Nine as I was to Next Gen or to Classic Trek and those kind of things. But as far as writing it, the great thing about being a nitpicker is the production deadlines are just too tight. There's just not enough money. You know, you're trying to put out a product and it's just inevitable that there's gonna be stuff that comes out. So you just watch the episodes as many times as I was watch them and sooner or later something would pop up and something would strike me funny. And so I'd write the little line. And so even though I didn't, I didn't feel like I had as much of a connection to Deep Space Nine as I had to Next Gen and to Classic, I mean, I'm sitting there at my computer and I'm writing my little thing and I'm laughing. And so it's great, you know, <laughs> you know, it's terrific. I just keep laughing and just keep writing my little stuff and I'm good. I was always, uh, I, th I think as a kid, you kind of expect, you know, oh, there's a book and it's clearly just part one. The rest's going to come at some point. And of course, there's the inevitable disappointment of, uh, you know, oh, we're not getting any more nitpickers guides. And uh, I, I remember, I can't remember where I read the news that, of kind of the reasons behind that, but I became aware at some point. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of what happened and, and why we don't have, you know, Deep Space Nine Volume 2 or Voyager. Sure, 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 sure. Um, you know, I need to back up a little bit because the nitpickers guides really only exist because of two people. One of them is Steve Etlinger. He was my agent and he wasn't really an agent. He was what's called a book producer. So what Steve would do is he'd come up with an idea for a book and like uh, the complete hardware book of gardening tools or something like that. And he would, he would put together this book, put together a proposal. He would sell the proposal to a company. He would do all the writing or hire the writers. He would hire the artists that put the whole package together. He would produce the book and then just, funnel it straight to the publishing company and the publishing company would put it out. Well, a buddy of mine, David Pogue, I don't know if you know the name David Pogue. He's like the, I think at this point, he's the head tech guy for Yahoo News or something. He was doing the novel and Steve was his agent, even though Steve wasn't an agent. And so I was looking around for something to do with what I was working on, this nitpicker's guide. And he said, well, why don't you talk to Steve? It's a nonfiction thing. Maybe, maybe he's interested. So I called him up. My first big sell was I had to do Steve. I had to sell Steve because Steve didn't watch TV. So Steve had no idea what Star Trek was. <laughs> he kept calling it Star Wars. And I would say, no, Steve, Steve, <laughs> it's not Star Wars, Star Trek. And I mean, I worked on him for months. And one day he called me up and he said, Bill, he said, uh, I was with my son in a department store. He said, did you know they have action figures for Star Trek? I said, yes, Steve, <laughs> this is a really popular series. <laughs> he said, we can sell this book. I said, okay, Steve. So it took me a couple of months to get him on board. Then Steve started sending stuff around. He got refusals, got refusals, got refusals. 
people were saying things like, no, you can't go with a title like the next gen or nitpickers guide. That's too negative. Nobody will buy it. You know, there were all these, uh, there are all these opinions. He heard about Gene Cavellos, who was a senior editor at, at the time, Bantam Doubleday Bell. He sends the book to her. She pulls out the proposal. She reads the first couple of pages. She picks up the phone. She calls Steve and she says, I want to do this book. So the fact that the nitpickers guides exist today was specifically because of Gene Cabello's. And if you know anything about the publishing industry, that's actually how stuff happens. So you've got to have an editor that gets enthusiastic about a book and that's how the book gets published. Um, unless you're a big name author and then they can publish anything and people will buy it. So, so we got in, we started doing next gen. I did classic Trek with Gene. Gene was at Bantam, uh, at Dell Trade Paperbacks, it was called at the time, and it was a literary imprint. So they did books about the guy who sits on the beach with his dog and thinks about life. That's the whole book. That's the type of book. They, yeah, they, they did not understand the nitpickers' guides. Gene understood the nitpickers' guides. She was the one initially that got me into conventions, she photocopied a bunch of flyers and sent them to conventions in her area. I mean, she was really instrumental in pushing, pushing, pushing the book because the marketing department at Dell didn't know what to do with it. Jean got interested in doing other things. She went on to become a college teacher. I went through a series of editors at uh, Dell Trade Paperbacks. None of them really got the books. They liked me because I got all my stuff in on time. Um, but it was in that period where we were doing Classic Trek and Volume 2 and Deep Space Nine. And the books were doing okay. They were doing okay. Not great. Not as good as the first one. They were just doing okay. Um, we were all kind of breaking even and I was having fun and it was fine. We did the X-Files guide. That was fun. Uh, and then Star, Star Wars was coming around. So it was getting ready to be the launch of the first three movies. It was in that 1997, 1998 timeframe. And we proposed to them a book that was on the first three movies, four, five, and six, and then all the novels because they were part of the canon. And so I was working on that book, reading through all those Star Wars novels, and, and, and frankly, some of them, not so good. So, you know, it's, oh, not so good. But I was reading through them and I was making notes. I had done my nitpicking pass on the first three movies. I had plenty of good stuff there. But there was just something that felt off. It just felt off about the book. And I just kept plowing through because I like to hit my deadlines. And one day Steve called me and he said, are you sitting down? And I said, they don't want to do this book. And he said, no, and they don't want to do any other books. And what had happened was, is A, Gene was not there anymore. So there wasn't really a champion for the book. But in addition to that, as I recall, the lawyer that Dell Trade Paperbacks had, Bantam Doubleday Dell, at that point had left and they had gotten a new lawyer who was more conservative. Mm. Simultaneously, 
uh, Paramount had started to go on the warpath about unlicensed properties, media tie-in properties, they were called. Because originally, the, none of the publishers thought there was much money in media tie-in. There was all this fan fiction that people were self-publishing and they weren't, they wasn't going anywhere. Then William Shatner put out Star Trek Memories and sold a bunch of copies. And it wasn't a licensed product because he was just talking about his own stories. It didn't need to be a licensed product. But everybody said, well, that's William Shatner. You know, he could write anything and it would be fine. And then the nitpickers guides came out and they were written by a nobody. And the first generation, the first next generation book sold 70,000 copies in its first year. And in the publishing business, that's saying something. I mean, all told, all of the books together sort of sold about 250,000 copies, which is very respectable for a book. Well, then other people started looking at that and saying, oh, well, we can do this. Well, we can do that. Well, we can do that. And in the space of that three or four years I was writing those nitpickers guide, there were more and more and more and more media tie-in products. And it got to the point where people were doing stuff that was clearly illegal. So, for instance, around that time, a Godzilla, the Godzilla movie had come out. I don't know if you remember the remake of Godzilla that was the yeah. USA uh, one. Someone had put out a Godzilla guide that had detailed plot synopsises that had pictures. You can't do that. That's copyright infringement. There was a judgment that was made against that book. At the same time, Paramount had kind of gone on the warpath, and there was a guy, he was an assistant district attorney, I think in New York. This was a long time ago. His name was Sam. Sam, I apologize if you ever hear this. I should know your last name and I should know exactly what you were. But um, he had written this book called The Joy of Trek. And it was a little small book. It was how to improve your relationship with a trekker. It sold for like 10 bucks. You know, I mean, it, it was not going to sell over 10,000 copies or so. I mean, the total gross on the book was going to be $100,000, $200,000. Nothing. Paramount sued the publisher for some ridiculous amount of money. It was like $22 million. Well, at that point, that puts this chill on the industry. What's interesting is I talked to Sam later, and Sam said he was in the courtroom, and he said they actually held up a copy of a nitpicker's guide and said, this is an example of what's legal. But it really did. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were very careful on how long our plot synopsises were. And we always made sure there was two thirds more material in every chapter than there was plot synopsis. That was all new stuff. So we were very careful to follow whatever guidelines we thought we had with fair use. And in fact, when the original lawyer was at Dell, Paramount had gotten in touch with them and said, hey, quit this. And the lawyer just said, look, this is legal. This is fair use. Stop bothering us. And they stopped. Um, but when the new lawyer came in, the new lawyer saw those judgments. They knew we were working on a Star Wars guide. They knew that George Lucas was litigious and that he would sue people. And at that point, the lawyer just told him, look, we can't keep doing this. This is interesting to me because I wasn't aware of all this, but it's not surprising to me. I mean, we've seen the same thing recently in relationship to fan films and CBS's reaction to that and such. So, I mean, that 
type of thing has been going on for a long time. And I wondered when I saw the books, and I think the DS9 ended at season four, and there was no more since. I figured it probably had something to do with publishers getting a little scared. Maybe we shouldn't go there. Right. And because they're, you know, the whole media tie-in books, it was it was really ramping up. And so the creators got to the point, because there was stuff that was illegal that was being done, it was copyright infringement. There was no, there was no question about that. You know, they when they clamped down on it then, uh, it didn't really matter that we were fair use, because fair use is actually a little ambiguous. There's no really clear, clear guideline. You can try to make a clear guideline, but anybody can sue anybody. And in the publishing business, the profit margins are so small that if you've got to spend any kind of type of time defending yourself with the cost of lawyers, and it just, your profits evaporate. So it just doesn't make any sense. And then once one publisher said, no, we're not going to do that. Then Steve actually tried to shop around and try to pick somebody else up. And he just, everybody just said, no, we don't think so. We don't, it's just not worth the risk. So I, I, I looked up the joy of track and saw it's Sam Raymer. There, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Sam, that's if it, you're listening, it. we got your last name in here. Yes. We got your last <laughs> name in there. Yes. And it was a fun book from what I understand. I actually, ch- I remember chatting with him on the phone and, and he just was, you know, he couldn't understand how in the world Paramount came up with a $22 million judgment and how they managed to win. Uh, but they did. And so there was, you know, that put the big well, chill the on the book's everything. still available for 20 cents on Amazon. So. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Used books. You exactly. gotta love so, it. I'm curious, though, if, if you could write another nitpicker's book on something, it doesn't have to be Star Trek or it can, whatever. What, what would you like to do today? Uh, actually, at this point, it's a, it's a question of time. The nitpickers guides were so amusing and they were so fun to write, but they were always a bridge to something else. They were always a bridge to me writing my own fiction. And at least that was the idea. Now, the problem was, is I did not understand the publishing business. And in the publishing business, you're only as good as your last book in the genre of that book. So I didn't understand. It didn't matter how much success I had as a nonfiction media critic. It would not translate to being able to get a fiction book published. Would not. That's not how the book publishing business works. And so uh, all publishers would say to me when I had this fiction book is, well, you've never published fiction before. And so then you're in that uphill climb of, of trying to get to the right editor at the right time. I have this whole, <laughs> for people who want to write fiction, for people who want to be authors, I have this whole speech that I give them about the publishing industry. Because if I can discourage you by giving this, you're, you're never going to make it. You, as, as a writer of fiction, you just got to keep plowing and write and write and write and write. And I came to the point, after the nitpickers guides, um, I turned around and said, okay, how can I get to the point where I can just write whatever I want, whenever I want? 
I happen to have some employable skills as a computer programmer and an IT consultant. And so I went back into that job. And my original idea was I'm going to work like crazy for 10 years, become independently wealthy, and then I'm going to retire at 50 and I'm just going to write. That's going to be that. Uh, I had some little complications along the way. I ended up at 50 and at 50, I just decided I cannot live any longer not writing. And so then I just decided I'm going to have two jobs. I'm going to be like, uh, oh, what's his name? Anthony Trelope, I think is his name. It's on my website. This guy, I think he was in the 1800s. He had a full-time job at the post office. He would get up every morning at like five o'clock. He'd spend a half an hour reading what he wrote the day before. And then in the next two and a half hours, he would write 2,500 words with pen and paper. The guy was astonishing, his output. And he would do that five, six days a week. And he would put out these big, huge novels and still have a full-time job. Mm. And so at that point, I thought, okay, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I've been doing that now since about, about the time I turned 50. You know, I have my goal now is 10,000 words a week. And I put down every week when I'm in a writing sprint, which is eight months out of the year, it's a long, complicated schedule. I do 10,000 words a week in those two-month writing sprints. So I do 80,000 words in two months, and then I do some editing on some other stuff, yada, 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 yada. So at this point, uh, I don't know that I would go back and write on any kind of a nitpicker's guide. I mean, they were a lot of fun to do. I really enjoyed them. It was a wonderful, wonderful time in my life. But I derived so much more joy just working on my own stuff that that's what I do. You know, when I finish up with you all, today's the easy day. I only got to put 500 words down on the page today. Nice. And I'll be able to knock that out in about an hour. Good to go. Tomorrow it's 1,500 words. Saturday it's 2,500 words. Sunday it's 3,000 words. And I do that all through July through August. And then you know, I turn around and start putting out the beta copies. Wow. That's impressive. That's uh, I, I, I definitely admire the dedication that it takes to, to be able to do that. You know, it's interesting. I, I was really trying to decide when I was going to retire because I'm going to be 60 this year. So you were talking, <laughs> you were talking about when you, when you got the book as a little kid and I'm like, well, right. Because that was 25 years ago. Um, I'm going to be 60. <laughs> I'm going to be 60 this year. And about five years ago, four years ago or so, I was trying to decide when am I going to retire? And I decided to launch into this series that's actually 24 books long because I figured I could do two books a year. That was 12 years and it would give me something to do until I retired. And so I'm in the midst of doing that now. I'm on book nine. Uh, I've actually already written eight books. There's over a million words down on this series at this point. Over, I think it's 3,300 pages, <laughs> something like that. And I just sit in my basement and just keep plowing them out, you know, because I derive so much joy from it. And it's part of that writing exercise. The more you do something, the better you get at it. And so these may not be an example of my best work, but that's okay. I'm getting a lot of experience writing at this point. 
you know, and then maybe after I retire, I can slow down a little bit, and really focus and you know, do better work. But for now, it's just, yeah, I, you know, I've got to know some authors through the show and my daughter's 16 and she's wanting to be an author and they always give me the same advice to give her. And that is just write, 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 just keep writing. And that's right. what she does like every right. day, you know, she's always writing. So um, that's what you're doing. That's, that's the advice that I keep hearing. You know, and it's interesting because there was a gap before the first nitpickers guide came out. There was a little gap in there where we were waiting to see what would happen. Uh, and foolishly or not, about that same time, we had built a house as well. We hadn't finished the basement, but we built this really nice house because the programming had gone really well. And there was one day that I was kind of pondering, you know, I'm going, I wonder, should I go get a job? Because we didn't know how the book was going to sell yet. You know, I had some overhead. And I was thinking, should I write? What should I do? What should I do? And I was walking down the stairs and I was turning the corner into the unfinished basement. And this thought came into my head. And the thought was, do you want to be a writer? And I kind of paused back and I said, well, yeah. And the next thought was writers write. And I went, okay. <laughs> and that's it. Writers write. That's, you know, people, people ask me, well, what happens when you get writer's block? And I tell them, no, no, there, there is no writer's block. What you do is you put your fingers in motion. You start typing something. You can always edit it later, but just keep your fingers in motion and something magical will happen. Sometimes I'll sit there and I'll rewrite a scene over and over and over again. And then just about the time when I'm ready to give up on the scene, something will happen. It's like, click, that's where we're supposed to be, you know, and then you're off to the races. But that never happens if you're just sitting, staring at a wall, waiting for inspiration. You've got to get your fingers in motion and start putting words down on the page. Yep. Dan, get your fingers in motion. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, I guess uh, maybe now would be the opportunity then uh, to let our readers know what you are writing and, and what, uh, what they should be on the lookout for. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm currently working on, uh, it's really an homage and a love series of 24 novels to a poem. And the poem is uh, The Second Coming by Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. It is a masterful poem. I, it's just an incredible, incredible incredible poem. Um, and I have loved this poem for so many years. And I realized, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, that the poem was going to go into public domain sometime around 2011. I don't know exactly. It was 2011, 2012, sometime there. The poem was going to go into public domain. And the poem is so masterful talking about a change of state, that, that the poem is all about the fact that it's obvious as we look around that there is change coming, that there is this thing approaching. And it spoke so much to me as, as to where we are in a society. I mean, the next 
10 to 15 years is going to be amazing. It will be amazingly bad or amazingly good, and it may be both. I mean, it's just going to be astonishing. And it was, the poem was so timely, and the, it ends so well, you know, and what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. I mean, it's so, it's so fabulous that I had this idea, you know, I could break the poem apart into 24 parts, and I could write a novel on each part and use that line and the emotional atmosphere of that line as the emotional atmosphere of the book. And so that's what I'm working on. But then of course you gotta have the big idea. Um, my parents are missionary. I come from a very strong Judeo-Christian ethic. There is this time that's prophesied that is an, a very interesting time to me. It's called the millennium of Jesus Christ. Basically, you've got this race of beings that show up, take over the world. They have two rules. This is all this, me making some of this up. The two rules are treat others as you wish to be treated or submit to our authority or die. You know, basically. So it's this authoritarian rule where everybody is forced to be good for a thousand so then I flashed forward to that and said, okay, and after that thousand years where everybody is forced to be good, what if everybody woke up one day and that race of beings was gone? And you've got some people who believe it was actually Jesus Christ and his followers, and you've got other people who think it was just aliens. And what would that be like? And what would happen after that? And the poem fits in that thing so well. And so you basically, you end up with this realm where people have been living for hundreds of years because there is no more disease, there's no poverty, there's no war, none of that kind of stuff. But then out around the edges, there are people who have just left because they're tired of all the authoritarianism. And once the wind, the race of Titans is called, once the wind leaves, then these people around the outside figure, okay, you know, it's time for us to take back what's ours. And so it's all ramping up for this massive, huge battle. And it, it all funnels back into that last line of the poem, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. And so I've worked my way through the first stanza now, because there's basically three stanzas in the poem. And each stanza, I'm going to make eight books. And so I've worked my way through the first eight books, the first octet. That was the conviction opus. And I'm starting now on the second octet. It's book nine. And, you know, I just, all, the books are all about 150,000 words. So <laughs> they're all about 425, 450 pages. And it's really just an exercise. They're, they're on Amazon, but I don't sell any books because I don't push. I don't, I just sit in my basement and write just for the joy of writing. And I tell people I don't write for millions, I don't write for thousands, I don't write for hundreds, I write for dozens. Because what I do is after I get a book finished, then I put out a beta copy of the book. And I get like 40 people, and I send them a copy of the book, they read the book, they give me back corrections and 
questions and commentary, I put those in, put out their comments on the back of the book, move on to the next book. So I'm on book nine right now. I should crest 100,000 words this week. Uh, I have to have the rough draft of book nine done by the end of August, but I'm right on target for that. So the next beta copy will be out in October. And, uh, you know, I just go on my little Facebook and say, hey, I got another book if anybody wants to read it. You know, <laughs> people say, sure, I'll read your book, you know. And so they read them and then I move on to the next book. But I do, I do zero marketing because it's really not about selling books. It's about the experience and the creativity of writing and just being in that position where there was nothing and now there is something. Because when those things hit, man, there is like this dopamine, you know, <laughs> rush that you get is like, oh, that's how this is going to work out. You know, and in this book, I have a bunch of little stuff. I still don't know how it's going to work out. And sometimes I don't know till I'm like right down on the last couple of pages. And then all of a sudden it opens up and it's just an amazing experience. It's just so much fun. And I make plenty of money as an IT consultant, so it's fine. You know, I sit in my basement. <laughs> I, I, I hope these. I hope one day I get to read these books, and then I'm going to make a book that's a nitpicker's guide to your. There books. you go. Do it, man. Do it. Perfect. It's funny now because as I'm recruiting beta readers now, if they're coming in new, I have to tell them, okay, now you you do understand. There was a million words that came before this book. <laughs> there was. 3,300 pages. So you're, there's going to be a little confusion, you know, but I have summaries and stuff in the front of the books and hopefully get people up to speed. But it's, it's interesting. It's just very, very interesting. I offended a bunch of people in book seven, but that was okay. I knew I was going to do that. I talked, I, I really delved deep into the whole engines of reproduction in book seven. Uh, so even though the books kind of have a religious set to it, I'm trying to talk about really important things in life. Um, and it's just a lot of fun because I just get to do core dumps out of the, the other stuff I'm thinking about of how to be successful in life and how to approach life and how does life have meaning and all those kind of things. And I find a way to filter those things in as well. So, you know, it brings me joy. That's the important. Awesome. And I, I personally think all good writing should offend at least somebody. So That's right. <laughs> well, if you're not, you know, I used to say a long time ago that offense is sometimes the first step to wisdom. If you don't make people uncomfortable a little bit, they're never going to consider their positions or try to defend their positions at all. And you have to think your way through because I think what's the popular term now, the echo chamber, if all you are is in an echo chamber and you're just hearing back the same thing that you believe, the same thing that you think, that's not good. You know, we have brains and minds and we can think things through and we should take the opportunity to do that. And it's okay if we don't all agree. That's really okay. Well, for those of you, who, uh, those of our listeners who are interested and want to read your books, where on Facebook should they find you? Uh, well, Amazon. They can find the books on Amazon. Uh, I do have a, a little poorly maintained website <laughs> at philfarron.com. 
B-H-I-L-F is in Frank, A-R-R-A-N, B is in dog.com, BillFerrin.com. I've got all the books listed out there. Uh, I've also done a children's series called Far Forth Fables. That's just, it's just cute and fun. Um, you know, I got a few other books that I've done. I think I'm up to, including the nitpickers guides. I'm somewhere around 24 books now. Uh, and they're all out on Amazon. So if you look for Phil Farron, they'll come up. The, the cutest thing about Amazon for me is that Amazon will always send you emails about products you might be interested in. So periodically about five weeks after I release a new book, Pretty typically, I'll get an email from Amazon.com and they'll say, oh, you might be interested in Windfall, The Counting House. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> I might be. That's a book I wrote. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, there's something just a bit off skew in their algorithm there. They should compare the name of the author and the name of the person that they're sending it to. But that's okay, you know. Someday we'll have artificial intelligence and it will do that. But not yet. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And uh, to be able to talk about these books that you know I've certainly loved and I think a lot of our listeners have, have grown up with and loved as well was definitely a true pleasure. Well, thank you very much. And it's, it's always wonderful here that you know someone has enjoyed the work. Like I said, my favorite compliment was the dog-eared book because you can tell people spent a lot of time with it. There, there you it go. Dan has it. <laughs> Yep. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll let you know as soon as the episode's out. All right. Well, have a great day. I mean, of course, we've never talked to Phil before. And I'm like, I don't know what Phil's going to be like, but he's just as fun as his books are. Yeah, that was an incredibly fun conversation. And I, I hope it didn't come across too giddy on my part because, you know, how much I love these books and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a really fun conversation. And what a just really personable, fun guy. Well, I thought as we're talking and I thought, well, he hasn't done a nitpick on the last three seasons of DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise and, of course, now Discovery and the new movies. We got a lot of nitpicking to do. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we just need to, it doesn't sound like it's easy to find a publisher, but that would be a lot of fun. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wouldn't get published. We'd just do it for fun. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about getting on the bad side of CBS's lawyers today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. Meta treks. You can see the Gene Roddenberry playing with the idea of what we could become given our full potential, and the aliens that have achieved that looking down and, and kind of criticizing or examining or evaluating humanity from a moral standpoint, almost like Q does in, in putting humanity on trial. There's a sense in which humanity is being judged by these morally superior aliens that are genuinely pacifists. Or in the case of Q, genuinely narcissistic. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's not trying to, to be a Starfleet officer. He doesn't care about doing that in the context of, well, because I want to prove that I'm a Starfleet officer. But I think that, and again, this is what perhaps in, in hindsight, after the fact, he starts to realize that who he is aligns itself or can align itself with what Starfleet stands for. To the journey! I was wondering why they didn't do a mind meld at the end of the, the episode. 
Why, why would they do that? Because Tressa has 90 some odd years, 94, 96 years of life experience, and Tuvok is a Vulcan, so he can mind meld. Why wouldn't he do that? Because there's no reason to do that. You're just going around mind melding with people willy-nilly just because they're old and you want their knowledge? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, it's like space genealogy. Dude, boundaries. Melodic treks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show, and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, Sandy Courage, wonderful horn theme, and... Um, Jerry's you know his theme for the first movie and, and make a theme out of those and combine them so I did it electronically and they said good enough and I said I look this is not my specialty and they said never mind you got it so 18 years later you know that was it and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond You'll find us wherever you found this podcast. Yeah, and if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app, and get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review like we have coming up here in a moment. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or just reach out and grab that RSS link. Well, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can help us out directly by becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, we do have an iTunes review uh, from from left field is his name and uh it's a five-star review so thank you so much he says good stuff for trek book lovers covers all the latest stuff would love to have them review some older books well thank you so much for that review uh we do do some older books i would love to do a deep dive into the you know 80s and 90s pocket books at some point uh Every once in a while, we cover some of the older stuff. We have done some from that era. Yeah, we have. That's true. Not a whole lot. We've done a few. But um, and again, every time somebody makes a suggestion, we're like, yeah, we've talked about doing that. There's just so much that we want to (laughs) do. And we have talked about even going as far back as some of those Bantam books from the 70s. Uh, I guarantee you that will happen someday. It will more than likely not be this year. But maybe in 2019, we will have a Bantam book review. That would be pretty cool. I think our oldest uh, book we've reviewed so far is Star Trek number two, The Entropy Effect by Vonda and McIntyre. That's the furthest back we've gone. And that was 1988 that, no, 81 that came out, 1981. So yeah, there's some old stuff. If you dig around on our, our backlog there, we've, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of old stuff. 
Yeah, and feel free to make suggestions, especially in those Bantam books. I, I mm-hmm. haven't even thought about which ones we would do out of that group. And if somebody really wants to hear us do a s- specific book in the Bantam era, we'll you know welcome that uh, suggestion. But yeah, and besides, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show too. And there's many ways you can do that. And the best place is to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. You just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And in when we have the show posted, you can even, on that post, just put what books you'd like us to review. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do it that way, too. And just use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact and choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter, at trek.fm, and you can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Trek FM. And of course, special for literary treks, we have a Goodreads group where you can find the bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section. So you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for literary treks on Goodreads and click join group and we'll let you right in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Grozier, Brandon Shamutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Now, Bruce, imagine you're sitting down to watch an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Picard walks into his ready room, walks over to the window and opens it up and then has a seat. What are you doing at that point? I am nitpicking about him opening that window. <laughs> exactly right. You were going to nitcentral.com slash discuss, and you were posting on the board how crazy it is that that happened in that episode. I'm posting it on the board. Exactly. I, I want everybody to know how crazy that episode is. And I'm also posting on the board that if they have any other comments on what I'm saying, they can follow me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and we can even nitpick there. And not only can we nitpick there, but when I'm doing the Star Wars Report podcast, we can nitpick about Star Wars and about that stormtrooper's helmet hitting the door. You know, yes, those are nitpicking <laughs> things we can do on there, too. And anytime in the Babel Conference, we can nitpick about Star Trek. We can nitpick about Dan and we can nitpick about me. Just nitpick everywhere. That's where you can find me on the interwebs. And Dan, when you're not walking around with four pips, then three, then four, where can people find you? Well, hopefully you're not noticing that discrepancy in my Instagram pictures, but, uh, you know, if they are there, you can find them at Instagram.com slash Kurtrats47. I'm on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, by the way. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, talking about Star Trek and hopefully covering the uh, Star Trek convention, which we'll both be going to at the end of this month. So how exciting is that? Awesome cannot wait and of course you can find us in the babel conference if we're not posting we're at least lurking so if you give us a shout out and you know if you're speaking about us we'll know what you're saying well thank you all so much for listening and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one